Section 56 of Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Stratagems and Conspiracies to Defraud Life Insurance Companies. An Authentic Record of Remarkable Cases by John B. Lewis and Charles C. Bombal. Homicide, Part 33, The Hendricks Case. In June 1877, one Henry C. Hendricks was convicted at Angelica, New York, of murder in the second degree, and by the court sentenced to imprisonment for the term of his natural life. The prisoner was indicted in the fall of 1876 for the murder of his wife, and at a previous trial, escaped conviction through a disagreement of the jury. Conflicting medical testimony, aided perhaps by a friendly personal feeling, led to this result, and also induced the absurd verdict rendered by the jury on the second trial. Hendricks was a young man of fine personal presence, about 32 years of age, a farmer, and was living at the time of the tragedy on the farm of ex-attorney General Champlain in Cuba, New York. His family relations, so far as known, seemed to have been pleasant and his previous character without reproach. He had served in the Army during the late Civil War and upon his discharge from service in 1865 had married and engaged in farming, working the estates of others upon what is commonly known as the share plan. He claims to have been awakened early in the morning of the 7th of July, 1876, by a noise in his sleeping chamber, and as he was in the act of springing from the bed across the body of his wife, a shot was fired which lodged in her abdomen. Going towards the door for the purpose of intercepting a supposed burglar, a second shot wounded him in the fingers and thigh. His wife had been able to rise from the bed and follow him without being aware of her own wound until his exclamation, I am shot, elicited from her. So am I, assisting her into another chamber and laying her upon the bed, he, for the first time, inquired where she was wounded and upon being told, in the bowels, examined her person and found such to be the fact. It would seem that this discovery should have convinced him of the serious character of her injury and moved him to immediate action for medical assistance and relief. But no, he claims to have been withheld by her entreaties and fears for his own safety. It states that, in their conversation, she expressed doubts of surviving the wound and talked of plans for his future and for their only child, a boy of nine years that she made some requests as to the disposition of personal remembrances to members of her own family, and at the last, that she advised him, after a reasonable length of time, to marry his cousin Maddie. Nearly two hours thus passed, and it was daybreak before an attempt was made to raise an alarm or procure the sorely needed assistance. Then, from the steps of the house, he fired his revolver in the air, and shouted for help in the intervals of firing. Soon afterwards, he sent his little boy, 
not to his nearest neighbor, but to the house where Mattie was temporarily lodged. She quickly responded to the summons and remained thereafter at Hendricks's house. Mrs. Hendricks lingered for six days, dying on the 13th of July. The day after her death, a post-mortem examination developed the course of the ball from its entrance near the umbilicus, passing inward, upward, and obliquely to the right, and affecting a lodgment in the right kidney, where it was found. The intestines were not injured, but the peritoneum was cut just the size of the bullet. The weight of the medical testimony conclusively established the fact that the wound must have been received while Mrs. Hendricks lay upon her back and it does not appear in evidence that any of the bedclothes or nightdress of the wife were perforated by the bullet. It will be remembered that Hendricks states that in rising he sprang across the body of his wife, having during the night changed his position from the front to the back side of the bed. An inspection of Hendricks's wounds disclosed a slight scratch upon the left thumb near the inner corner of the nail, and a corresponding wound upon the left index finger. The wound upon his left thigh was upon the outer side, about 12 inches above the knee, and had the appearance of having been made by a small bullet which had passed through and just beneath the skin at a point about one inch from the place of entry. All bore the appearance of having been made by point-blank shots, the distance of the weapon not exceeding, apparently, three inches. It was the theory of the prosecution that these wounds were self-inflicted, based upon the fact that the wound upon the thigh was in an oblique direction, presenting the appearance of having passed from the inside outward, that the subsequent discharge of matter, therefore, contained dirty, darkish-brown particles, which were without doubt grains of gunpowder, and that the flash near the wound upon the inner side of the thigh also appeared as if burned. An offer was made to fix the relative position of a hole in his shirt, made, as he claimed, by the shot which wounded him with the marks upon the thigh. But in all positions, it was apparent that his claim was untrue. Little doubt existed in the minds of the surgeons in attendance of the guilt of Hendricks, or that his wounds were inflicted by any other than himself for the purpose of diverting suspicion from himself and avoiding legal inquiry. His efforts to this end were for a time successful. Three months elapsed before his arrest and subsequent indictment, and it cannot be questioned that such action was at last taken as a result of the inquiry and investigation instituted, and in a measure conducted in the interest of an insurance corporation. In May preceding the shooting, Hendricks had obtained from the agent of the Travelers Insurance Company an accident policy upon himself. The insurance company was informed soon after his arrest that he proposed, if acquitted, to present a claim of indemnity for four weeks' disability. The life of his wife was insured by the Mutual Life Insurance Company of New York, for the benefit of her legal representatives in the sum of $2,000. Subsequently, he endeavored repeatedly to secure its assignment to himself, but without avail. 
His efforts to this end continued even after the shooting and may have been one of the subjects of conversation during the hours of suffering which Mrs. Hendricks endured before he sought assistance. Her father testifies, I had conversation with the prisoner about his wife's insurance. I told him the policies were not equal, that hers was worth $2,000 to him, while his was only worth anything to her in case of contingencies, that I did not care for the money and would speak to one of the ladies and have them speak to Cynthia, Mrs. Hendricks, about it. I did so. This was in the forepart of the day. In the afternoon, the matter was again spoken of. Another witness testifies, Hendricks talked with me about 11 o'clock the morning of the shooting about the insurance. Mrs. Hendricks's father wanted me to speak to her about it. Then he went out and Hendricks said, We have talked it all over and it is understood. And he wanted me to speak to her. I went to her and said, We would like to know how you want the insurance, whether to you or to Henry. She said, To Henry, for his is drawn to me, and it is no more than right that mine should go to him. This evident anxiety to realize to himself the pecuniary benefit which would result from the death of his wife does not seem to have roused at the time any suspicion in the minds of those present all of whom were relatives or friends of his wife. Without specific designation, her son was the legal representative, and the father, in the ordinary course, would have been the legal as he was the natural guardian of their child, and as such, would have controlled the proceeds of the policy. He was not content to administer the trust for another although in the situation it would seem that parental affection would dictate such course. But he sought to acquire the absolute ownership of the benefits to be derived from the policy. The realization of the insurance fund was not, however, the only apparent motive actuating the commission of the crime. Some two years previous, a young lady cousin of Hendricks had become a frequent visitor, She is described as a person of rather more than average height, of a slight, delicate build, with brown hair, large and expressive black eyes, a very intelligent look, and an attractive person. Frequent rides in each other's company, visits to mutual relatives, with occasional trips to neighboring villages, and on one occasion, her installation into the charge of his house during a short absence of his wife characterized their earlier intimacy. It is apparent that such relations soon developed into others of a more intimate and questionable nature than was warranted by the kinship which existed between them. In May preceding, she had, at his request, taken up her residence with him, but, objection being made by his wife, the arrangement was terminated two days previous to the shooting. While no act of open criminal intimacy could be directly and positively charged as having been committed, yet so strongly did appearances indicate such relations that even before the death of Mrs. Hendricks, her sisters did not hesitate in asserting their existence, and the conduct of the two during the week Mrs. Hendricks lingered after being wounded was such as to favor such belief. 
none other dressed his wounds, the location of which necessarily involved an exposure of his person. And although she had a way of making the dressing stay on better than he could, yet the operation was required to be repeated several times during the day. Little attention or service was rendered by either of them to his dying wife, but, withdrawing from her and the friends surrounding her, they passed their time in each other's society, until, upon the day of her death, indignant remonstrances by relatives forced an outward observance of propriety. Cousin Maddie continued with Hendricks after the burial of his wife, and their relations, according to the testimony at the trial, were even more intimate than before. In his desire to possess for himself marital rights over her, the days passed too slowly, for we find that in October, but three months after the burial of his wife, he sought an interview with his father-in-law and stated to him the request of his late wife that he should marry his cousin Mattie, and desired advice. No objection was made, the reply of the father being, if that was her request, I have nothing to say. Hendricks evidently was of the opinion that the reasonable time had elapsed, or that his wounds still required the attention which, it appears, she alone could give. His hopes were not, however, to be realized. Arrest, presentment, indictment, and trial succeeded, with the final result as stated in our opening. That the verdict rendered was wholly at variance with the testimony and evidence cannot be denied. The array of evidence, circumstantial as it may have been, fully proved the crime intentional and its perpetration premeditated, if it proved anything. None other than the prisoner could have any motive for its commission or profit by its perpetration. His circumstances were not such as to expose him to a visitation from burglars seeking to obtain either money or valuables, and a tenant farmer does not generally possess such property as invites the attention of those gentry. To us it seems that the case, as presented, did not admit of other findings than guilty or not guilty, as charged in the indictment. The time and manner in which the crime was committed, apart from any other circumstances or consideration, were conclusive as to its premeditation. No sudden fit of temper or angry quarrel led to its commission. It was deliberately planned and as deliberately executed. His neglect to raise the alarm or seek required assistance, his inattention to his wife and subsequent conduct all served to stamp his act as intentional, premeditated murder. The verdict as rendered was a mockery in the administration of justice and a scandal and reproach upon the jury who, by their solemn oaths, were sworn to well and truly try and true deliverance make without respect of person or favor of any man, according to the law and the evidence before them. End of section 56